Well, good morning once again, church. It's good to gather with you. Before I begin, just want to extend a special welcome to those who are with us for the first time or near the, the first time, second, third time. Just we're so grateful to have you with us. Um, as Charles voiced in his prayer, we, we really want to be used as a church to cause ripple effects for the Great Commission. Our passion here at Christ Community is to be a launch site for global ministry for the glory of Christ. We want to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. And that begins, that begins so crucially right here and now in the relationships within this body as we immerse ourselves personally in the word of God and then also seek to make the spiritual growth of one another our top priority. So continue to pray for our mission as a church. But if you're here with us and it's among your first times visiting, again, a special welcome to you. We know you could have gone anywhere to worship Christ this morning and you're here with us and we take it serious to care for you in any way that we can. So please let us know. Please let me know. One of the elders know. Uh, Rich, who was up here earlier. Charles, who was just up here. Steve, uh, who was among us somewhere right there in the middle. Please come find us and, and let us know how we can minister to you. Well, I want to begin by saying that the longer the silence, the louder the sound that breaks it. The longer the silence, the louder the sound that breaks it. And before Jesus Christ came to the planet, the silence from God was long and it was profound and it was painful. Because for 400 years before Christ came, God hadn't said a thing to Israel. There were no prophets, no prophecies, no messages, no visions, no dreams, no updates. There were no reassuring words that everything God had promised would still come to pass. There were no heavenly emails sent to the people reminding them that the plan was still on, that nothing had changed, that the king would come, that the kingdom would arrive, that God still had every intention of fulfilling every plan, that every promise that he had made to Israel. There was nothing from God except silence. Because you realize, don't you, that the Old Testament ends on a cliffhanger? A 400-year cliffhanger of silence. And the Old Testament literally ends with the people of Israel, what's left of them anyway, crushed and broken, living in sin, literally standing in the rain, fade to black, the end, credits roll, silence for 400 years. Which makes sense of the song that was written centuries later. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That was their prayer. But then after 400 years, God finally breaks the silence with a cry in the night. A barn in a dumpy village, God enters into the hay and manure of a broken world in desperate need of fixing. Are you kidding me? This? Jesus, the, the peasant, the carpenter's son? This? This is the king who would come? This one is going to shake the Roman Empire. This one is going to save the world. You're darn right he is. 
Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, pleased as God with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And when God broke the silence by sending his son, that's the theme of our advent here at Christ Community because when God broke the silence, he did so. He did so in the most profound and remarkable way possible, namely by sending his son to the planet as a literal historical human being for us and for our salvation. You see, that is advent. That is Christmas. And for the next two Sundays at Christ Community and on Christmas Eve, we're going to take time to contemplate the most profound mystery there is. God, without ever ceasing to be fully God, became fully man. God became what he was not without ever ceasing to be what he always had been. In other words, God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. See, that right there is, as they say, not only the reason for the season, that is the reason and meaning and purpose of everything. And I don't want you to misunderstand here. I'm not a sour Scrooge or a, a Christmas curmudgeon that you see that there's nothing wrong with Christmas trees so long as they point you to the ultimate tree upon which the Son of God hung. I want you to feel no shame this Christmas and giving and receiving gifts and presents so long as they point you to the ultimate gift and present, namely God who is wrapped in mortal flesh. I just want you to know that candies and cookies and candles have their rightful place in the holidays so long as they don't overshadow the crib and the cross and the crown of Jesus Christ. You see, what I love about Christmas is that we are the only ones on the planet who can say it's the most wonderful time of the year because we can say that about every day. Why? Because God has spoken. God has revealed himself. He has broken the silence. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. And so this morning, I just want you to know you're not going to Bethlehem this morning. You will meet no wise men along the way. There will be no shepherds abiding in the fields, no swaddling clothes, no, no mangers, no choirs of angels. I hope that's okay with you. But you see, what you're going to get is not less Christmas. You're going to get the essence of Christmas because we're going to take time to unfold the most popular, well-known verse in the history of the church, namely, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life because that right there, that is the very foundation of our joy and our hope forever. So here we go. You should have notes in your hands. Here is where we're going. Warmer than fire, sweeter than cider. We see the foundation of our hope. Here's where we're going. I want you to see seven factors of salvation. Seven factors about salvation that will help you this Christmas do three things. Adore the Son, announce the gospel, 
and advance the plan. That's where we're going. Seven factors about salvation that will help you this Christmas. Adore the Son, announce the gospel, and advance the plan. So here we go. First factor of salvation, number one, the driving force of God's plan. The driving force of God's plan, which is love. But you see, here's the thing about John 3.16 that, that you must never, ever forget. Christ is the one who is speaking. And in particular, he is speaking about himself. And what this passage is, is essentially a sermon, a kind of sermon, but preached only to one person. And that person is Nicodemus. And you know all about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. And you know all about the Pharisees, don't you? They weren't just the religious leaders, but they were the highest legal representatives in the entire country. And when the Pharisees first began some 200 years before this, believe it or not, they were actually a good thing. They were zealous protectors of God's word, but now they had become something else entirely. Now they were powerful, political, influential, self-righteous, and spiritually dead. And Nicodemus was a part of that group and he was blind and dead and damned and helpless and he didn't even know it. That is until he paid a visit to Christ one night and then he found out the truth. And the truth was, although he had worked his entire life to secure for himself a place in the kingdom, it had all been for nothing why? Because what he refused to accept, what he refused to believe, what he did not know from the Old Testament somehow is that salvation can never, ever be obtained by your own works, but only as a sovereign God, sovereign work of God performed in the soul. And that's what Christ brings to the table, and it, and it rocked his world, turned his life upside down. But you see, Christ was not merely interested in reigning on his parade, but giving him the truth. And the truth is found in John 3, 11 through 21. And you see, here's the thing. How verse 16 fits in the mix, familiar and, and famous verse 16, how it fits in the mix, get this now, is that it explains the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet in the first place. And why did he? You know it well. Look at the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son in order that everyone who believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. Did you see it? That tiny, little, unsuspecting word, for, in the text. Just like in English, the Greek word is three letters, but in those three letters is crammed an avalanche of significance. Why? Because when Christ says for, he is giving you, he is explaining, he's giving you the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet in the first place. And why did he? Why did he show up? What is the answer? God so loved the world. That's the reason. That's the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet. It was a Trinitarian reason. God so loved the world. And by God, Christ means God the Father. 
So that means what drove the father to send his son to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit was not because we were worth it, was not because we deserved it, was not because of anything within us, but ultimately because of radical, profound, Trinitarian love. And maybe you're thinking, where is the Trinity in this? I don't don't see this in the text. Oh, it's there, all right. Because the Father sent the Son. God the Father sent God the Son, not on a suicide mission, but a salvation mission to save the very people who sinned against him. But, But you noticed, though, didn't you, in the text, it doesn't merely say that God loved the world, but so loved the world so loved. And you know there's a calculated difference between I love you and I so love you. You see, the point is God was not obligated to save sinners. He was motivated to save sinners. Not because the world is a worthy object of love, but because the one who loves is infinitely worthy. What this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What is the love of God? What does it mean that God loves you? Because you know, I don't have to tell you, there are a lot of really squishy ideas about, out there about what God's love is, but I'll tell you what it is. God's love is God's commitment, get this now, to do whatever it takes to do what's best for sinners. And what's best for sinners is himself. So God's love is God's commitment to do whatever it takes to enthrall and exhilarate sinners with himself. Don't you see? The most loving thing God can do is give us that which is infinitely worthy and lasting and satisfying, that which is of infinite worth and value. And the only thing that fits that description is God himself. Therefore, God's love is God giving himself to be enjoyed forever with everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure forever. And that's exactly what he did when he sent Christ into the world. And so I just ask you, believers in Christ this morning, do you know what the love of God means for your life? It means at least three things. One, his love for you is eternal. Two, his love for you is particular. And number three, his love for you is undeserved. His love for you is eternal. Eternal. As long as God has existed, which is always and forever, God has loved you. And his love for you is particular. His love is not merely some general, squishy, ambiguous love in a general way for this ocean of humanity. No, his love is for you in particular, even from before the foundation of the world. And his love for you is undeserved. And you see, what that does is give us the assurance that no matter what it is happening in our lives, it is a design of God to give you more of himself to be enjoyed brings us to the second factor of salvation. Number two, the direction of the plan. The direction of God's plan, which is the world. And what I mean is the the brilliance of God's love becomes all the more apparent and obvious and conspicuous and, and even shocking when you consider the object of God's love, namely us. 
the world. Because th there is something scandalous about the world that makes God, God's love of it, it makes it shocking. There's something profound about this, and, and you've seen it a thousand times, but look again at verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world. The world. <laughs> and I'll admit, I, I'm obsessed with the Trinity and the plan of salvation unfolding in history. And, and you notice here in the text, God's love for the world. Get this now, God's love for the world predated and preceded Christ's entrance into the world. That makes sense? In other words, he loved the world before he sent Christ into the world. Do, do you see that? And yet, the thing is, you don't have to look very far, even within the Gospel of John itself, to see that God so loved the world even before there was a world to love. See, that by itself, that would be enough to stagger you. But see, what pushes us over the edge is what Christ means by the world. Because by the world, he doesn't mean mother nature or the physical planet. He means people. He means people. And he means very particular kinds of people. He means fallen people, sinful people, wicked people. He means the entirety of the human race throughout the ages that have defied him and mocked him and ignored him and belittled him and shook their fists at him and treated him as though he were worthless. That's what Christ means by the world. And I beg you, do not depersonalize this. I mean, this is not some kind of nameless, faceless ocean of humanity. The world includes you. And it includes me. You see, to admit that we are a member of the human race is to admit that we are born convicted felons guilty of God's wrath. When you get that, when you get what it means to be a member of the human race who have collectively turned from God in rebellion, then and only then can you feel the scandal of God's love for the world. But here's the question. Is that the only thing that Christ means by the world? No, he means more than that. You see, Christ doesn't only mean the depravity of the world. He means the diversity of the world, doesn't he? Because here's the thing, the world is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It includes all ages and races and genders, men and women, everything from murderers to self-righteous do-gooders. That's billions and billions of people throughout the ages that God has loved with radical Trinitarian affection. So you see the implication of this, don't you? I mean, think about the things we've had to see in the headlines for months and even the last couple years. Black lives matter, cops' lives matter, all lives matter. It's all true, but it all misses the point. What matters is that the glory of God has been trampled by human beings. And yet, God in his love made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. God has made a way where there may, be, there may be a substitute who stands in the place of sinners. And that substitute is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, the point is that is the most racial, severing, prejudice, erasing reality in the universe. God so loved the world, wicked though it was.
Which brings us to the third factor about salvation. Number three, the decision to rescue. The decision to rescue, which is that God gave. God gave something. And, and I know that what I'm about to say is about to run the risk of getting us lost in the details here. But I want you to look at the text. And I want you to pay attention to the words that God gave. God so loved the world that or so that he gave. Now, do, do you know what the word that or so that means? I mean, what, what, is the, what is the significance of that or so that? Well, consider. And I, by no means, am trying to raise the standard or impose anything upon any of you husbands, but if a husband loved his wife so much so that he bought her an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe? What does, what does the phrase that or so that mean? What does that mean? Well, you know what it means. You know exactly what that means. It means that his love and affection for his wife prompted and resulted in buying her an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. Do you see his, that word that or so that? It means effect. It means result. It means outcome. It means byproduct. The point is the radical love of the Father could not be contained. It had to overflow. It had to be displayed. It had to be offered in infinite generosity to the very people who sinned against him. You see, his love, get this now, his love resulted and a captivating plot to save hell-deserving sinners from eternal ruin and destruction. And, and did you notice this? Notice very carefully. We know the text so well that we have forgotten to be impacted. Look at the text. God so loved the world that he gave. It could have said sent, and it would have been right, but he says gave. He didn't merely send his son. He gave his son. Gave meaning gift. Gift meaning when we only deserved judgment and wrath. God did the opposite of that. And the opposite of judgment and wrath was his son. And there's a name for that in the Bible, isn't there? When you were given the opposite of what you deserve and what you earn, there's a name for that. And the name for that is called grace. And you know what grace is, don't you? I hope you know, because if you miss grace, you miss Christianity. Get this. Grace is God's pleasure to save us from what we most deserve and give us what we least deserve. That's grace. Grace is God's pleasure to save us from what we most deserve and give us what we least deserve. That is grace. And what we most deserve is wrath, not redemption. We deserve destruction, not deliverance. We deserve punishment, not paradise. We deserve torment, not treasure. And yet, in the greatest plot twist in history, God intervened as a man to give us what we least deserve. That's grace. And you have to understand, God is so many things all at the same time. He is creator. He is king. He is a father. And he is a judge. But never, ever forget that he is also, by nature, a savior. And what that means is he loves sinners. 
and he loves to save them. And he has spared no expense to do so. Because what he gave is his own son to be treated as sinners deserve. And that right there is the essence of grace. And so, so he, here's the payoff of grace in your lives as believers. Here's, here's the payoff of grace. Here's why this matters to your lives. Are you ready? Because again, we use these words all the time and we have forgotten the impact. Here's the payoff of grace. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that sanctifies you. The same grace that resurrected our souls from the dead is the very same grace that renovates you into the image of Christ. You see, grace isn't just the thing that sort of tips you into the kingdom. Grace is the very power of God that makes you fit for the kingdom. And you see, how you get access to that grace, how you get that grace funneled down into your lives, listen very carefully, is the moment by moment, second by second, desperation upon Christ through his word. Many people, they talk about Christianity being a relationship, right? And that's true, that's true, but let's define the nature of that relationship, shall we? You see, this is not a relationship between two able-bodied people equally contributing to one another's well-being. That's not what kind of relationship this is. Rather, the relationship is more like that between a cripple and the caregiver. And we are the cripples. We are the spiritual quadriplegics and Jesus Christ is the paramedic who not only saved us from the wreckage, but he also is the one who rehabilitates our lives through the power of transforming grace, which happens through the word, the mechanism of God's transformation in your lives is the text. So if you want to grow if you want to be changed, if you want to be transformed, if you want to see victory over those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to go away, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. All you need to do is read and to read slow. And then to read the text again and again and again and again until it becomes a part of you. And over time, God transforms the mind. He, he renews our affections. He makes us different people so that we no longer crave the things that would lead to our destruction and the train wreck of our lives. It all comes down to the text. Christ is here. Christ is Emmanuel present in his word to meet you and to transform you. Which brings us to the fourth factor of salvation. Number four, the design to save the design to save, which is the Son. The Son. And if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know, you know that the truth of Christianity, after a while, it begins to sound normal. Right? It begins to sound routine, e even mundane. I mean, the fact that salvation is found only in Christ alone, I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. I mean, that, that's Christianity 101. Moving on now. And yet, and yet, my, my question is, what would this have sounded like to a first century Jew like Nicodemus? What, what, what would have come to his mind? What would the gospel would have sounded like 
to him. It sound, well, we know what it sounded like to him. It was crazy. It was outrageous. That the secret weapon of plan, uh, the secret weapon of salvation, the God's plan to save sinners, was a Jewish peasant with no formal education who who died on a Roman instrument of torture and death. That's that's ludicrous. That that's insane. That does not make any sense. Why? Because because what does a Jew crucified in a hunk of lumber two thousand years ago? How does that change anything about the status of your soul? That's that's crazy. No, it's not crazy. It's incredible. And the reason why it works is because Jesus Christ is not just a man. He is God. Look again at verse sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, in order that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, there it is, familiar but no less profound. God's design to save sinners was not a philosophy, it was not a ritual, it was not a ceremony, it was a person. The secret weapon of the plan of salvation is Jesus Christ. And I know you know that. And you've always known that. But, but the question is, haven't you always secretly wondered what son means? Because I don't know about you, but for years I, I tripped over the laces, the shoelaces of that son language because it kind of made it sound like that, that Jesus Christ is less than God, like sort of a demigod or discount deity who's less than God but more than man. I mean, is that what it is? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the son of God? And, and my question is, what would this have sounded like in the ears of a trained scholar like Nicodemus? Well, consider, if you were an Old Testament Jew who loved your Hebrew Bible, you would be what they would call a rigid, strict monotheist. Meaning what? Meaning that you would be ferociously dogmatic till death that there is one God and one God only. Not two, not millions, there is one. Which is, by the way, exactly what we believe. And yet, what was that Jew who loved his Hebrew Bible supposed to do when he saw different people, two different people called God, sometimes even in the same verse? What was he supposed to do with that? He could have one of two options to choose from. Either A, God is schizophrenic and has multiple personalities, or B, God is a trinity. I choose door number two. God is a trinity, God eternally existing. As three separate but equal persons who are each fully God, who are each eternally God, and who are each equally God, and yet there is one God. Now, now I'll grant you the full blueprints and, and revelation of the trinity had not yet been revealed in the Old Testament. That is true, but there are enough glimpses and hints and shadows in the Old Testament to tell the people of Israel that although God was one, he was simultaneously more than one. Although God was God alone, he was simultaneously not alone. 
And this son language, although mysterious to Nicodemus, this would not have been new for him. I just want you to know, this would not have been new. Why? Because at least seven places in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called the son. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Proverbs 30, Isaiah 9, and Daniel chapter 7. This son language, this was not new to Nicodemus. You see, when Christ calls himself the son here, he is making a profoundly Trinitarian statement. You see, to be the Son means that He is God the Son. It's a title of deity. He's absolutely equal to the Father in terms of His worth and value and glory and perfections. But as the Son, He has a particular role that differentiates Him from the Father and the Spirit. And his role, his role, and you know this, his role is to be the one sent by the Father as a man to save ruined sinners from woe and despair. And, and yet you notice, right, the Father didn't just send his son, he sent his only son. And that doesn't merely mean that he was an only child. It's not merely a mathematical minimum. That term only describes, it's a term of dignity. It's a term of rank. It's a term of supremacy. The idea is to have no rival, to have no equal. It's to be incomparable. You see, this wasn't merely some controversial rabbi who did nice things for people. This wasn't some angelic visitation, incredible though that would have been. No, out of everyone the Father could have given to save us, he gave the best there is. Which for me raises the question. And I'm wondering, have you ever thought about this? Why the Son? Why did the Father put Christ at the center of the plan of salvation? Why the centrality of the Son? I mean, why didn't the Father incarnate as a man? Why didn't the Spirit become a human being? Why the Son? Why did it have to be the Son? And I don't know why it had to be, but I know why it was. I know why it was. Because in John 17, guess what we discover? We discover in John chapter 17 what the Trinity had been doing for all eternity before creation. And in that chapter, Christ reveals that for all eternity, get this, the Father and the Son had loved each other with radical Trinitarian affection. They mutually enjoyed one another's glory and beauty. And and as the Father looks upon his Son, he is so thrilled by what he sees, he then crafts a plan of salvation with his Son at the center. He, in the overflow of his joy, he shapes this plan where his Son is at the center. Why? I'll tell you why. Show and tell. That's why. It's for show and tell. Because you remember, don't you, the kindergarten days of show and tell? You got to bring your favorite thing and show it off, and you got to show it and talk about it, and you wanted everyone to feel about that thing the way you felt about that thing, and the connection is all of human history is just one giant show and tell by the Father. The Father put His Son at the center of His plan because He wanted everyone to see and enjoy what He had seen and enjoyed forever. 
He wanted everyone to feel about his son the way he felt about his son. And so the deepest reason why you have salvation this morning, if in fact you do have it, is because of the radical, eternal joy and delight that the father had in his son. It's true, God loved the world, but he loved his own son most of all. (laughs) And that brings us to the fifth factor about salvation. Number five, the duty of the guilty. The duty of the guilty, which is Faith, it is to believe. Because here's, here's the, the, the thing. If God made a way to escape the punishment that we so deserve, and he did, well, the question is, how then do we get access to that way of escape? If Jesus Christ is the solution to, for, for wrath-deserving rebels like us, and he is, then how do we gain access to what he paid for? And I know you've seen it. You've seen it a thousand times. Look at the text. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? In order that everyone who believes in him, believes in him, should not perish, but should have eternal life. Do you see that? You got to believe. You got to believe. The mere fact that Christ showed up to the planet, that doesn't automatically change anything about the status of your soul. No, there has to be a transaction of faith. You've got to believe to to access salvation. There has to be a deliberate, conscious act of faith on the part of the one who needs salvation. And notice, this is for everyone who believes. Everyone. The offer of eternal life is extended to every tribe and tongue and nation and people, immoral, liars, murderers, terrorists, prostitutes, and self-righteous do-gooders. It is open to everyone. Free, privileged access to the treasure of salvation found only in Christ, which begs the question, doesn't it? What is faith? Do you know what it believes? If someone stopped you on the street and they asked you, what does it mean to believe? What is faith? Could you tell them? Could you define for them what faith is? Because hasn't it always kind of felt fuzzy and nebulous to you? It has, it has for me. And we are not helped by cliches and, and platitudes that say, well, you know, faith is a, it's blind faith and it's a leap of faith. I'll just tell you right now, there is nothing blind or leapy about faith. You see, faith has substance. Faith has an object And it is Christ through his word. You see, faith is not mere intellectual affirmation of a few historical facts. Although that's true, that's not the whole truth. Faith is not merely affirming the existence of something that you cannot see. That's part of the story, but that's not the whole story. No, get this. Faith is the brokenhearted admission that you are bankrupt. And that the only contribution that you have to your own salvation are the sins that need to be forgiven. Faith is a work of God in the soul where we clear all the other competitors off the shelf and we grab a hold of Christ alone as the one who satisfies the soul, as the one who made the solution for sins by the sacrifice of himself. You see, that is faith. And yet notice, I'm gonna get super nitpicky here. Notice what the text says. It says, everyone who believes in 
him. Meditate on the details of the Bible, I beg you. The pixels of the Bible, there's glory there. What does in mean? In him, what does it mean? What does it accomplish? You see what the word in does? Is that limits the realm of possibilities and options of how to gain salvation down to one. Down to one. Namely, Jesus Christ alone. And you know this, but outside, feel this, feel this new this morning, outside of Jesus Christ is only the wrath and justice that we so deserve. And I know, and I, and I get it. People have always complained that Christianity is too narrow, isn't it? Isn't that what we've always heard? I remember meeting with a Buddhist monk, like an actual real Buddhist monk from Tibet, sent by the Dalai Lama himself to America to evangelize the West with Buddhism. And I got to stay, I got to meet with him in his home, and he sits at there cross-legged, unfolding to me the mess of Buddhism. And he got to talk for about an hour and a half, and I got about three and a half minutes, and, um, which was fine. I'm his guest, his show, his house, his rules, but I asked him some questions, and I proceeded carefully to share the gospel in the time that I had, and he said, you know, you are what's wrong with the world. You are so narrow. And the thing is, Although the Bible says that Christ is the only way for salvation, the Bible never restricts who's allowed to believe it, does it? It's for everyone to believe. It's for everyone to believe. Every person on the planet has equal, privileged access to the treasure of salvation purchased by Jesus Christ, free of charge because of his death. You see, that's not narrow. That is shockingly generous. And so to those here in this room who, who may not know Jesus Christ, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just guessing maybe there's someone here. I just, I just, I just need you to, to level with me this morning, if you don't know Christ, I need you to level with me and be honest with me that, that the thing in which you are hoping that will come through in the clutch and satisfy your soul, can we just admit this morning that it's not working? Can we just admit that? Can we just be honest with one another? It's not working, and you know it. And if it feels like it is, don't worry. That will not last long. Because why it's not working is because it's not God. And that's why Jesus Christ came to the planet to get your sins out of the way to bring you home to God. Which leads to the sixth factor about salvation, number six, the danger of rejection. The danger of rejection, which is perishing. Perishing. And I've said it many times in evangelistic conversations to unbelieving friends of mine. Eventually the conversation gets to this point where I just have to look them in the eye and then I have to say these words. And I've said this many times, but eventually I just have to say, you know, hell is a real place and people go there. And there are people there even as we speak. And the reality of hell is exactly what Christ says at the end of verse 16. Look what he says. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son in order that everyone who believes in him, here it is, should not perish but should have eternal life. Isn't that interesting? Hell is real. But you don't have to go there. You don't have to perish. Follow the gospel logic. The reason why the Father gave His Son was so that sinners could escape from what they most deserve to get what they least deserve. I mean, doesn't that say something about who God is? Doesn't that reveal His character? I mean, this is incredible. Listen to Ezekiel 33, 11, where God just pleads with his people. He says, as I live, declares Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you see, either way, God will be glorified. Either by justice against sinners or by Jesus saving sinners. But if God is to be glorified, stay with me here, if God is to be glorified and he is, then it seems we get this sense from the text that at one level he prefers to be glorified not by wrath upon sinners, but by saving sinners from his wrath. God seems to have a preference here that, that if he's going to be glorified, and he is, then he wants to be glorified by salvation upon sinners, not condemnation of sinners. But be that as it may, having said that, hell is a real place and people go there and we should be there even as we speak. And, and you see, we know that Christ is talking about eternal punishment. We know because of how he contrasts it. See, what is the opposite of perishing? What is the opposite of it? It is eternal life. So that goes to show that he's not talking about some temporary place of punishment. Purgatory is not a real place. That is an invention. There, there's no such thing as, you know, hell is not a, a rehabilitation program where once you're there, you get out early for good behavior. That is a myth. There is no such thing. It is real and it is eternal. Say it slowly. Eternal conscious torment real. That's real. But you see, the point of the text is that God has made a way where sinners don't have to go there. I mean, this is unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up, but you can reject it. You can reject it. I've said this before. What fools are they? What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? But you don't have to drink that wrath because there is a seventh and final point. Number seven, here it is. The destiny of the undeserving. The destiny of the undeserving, which is eternal life. You know it because you've seen them. Head-on collisions in traffic are oftentimes fatal. But head-on collisions of grace in the text, they're glorious. And a head-on collision is exactly what we see. Look at the end of verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that is that they should have eternal life. It's incredible, isn't it? 
I want you to feel this here. There is a way to not perish, but have eternal life. Say it, eternal life. Are you kidding me? That's what everybody is after. That's what everybody is after. Isn't that true? Deep down in their souls, what everybody, all of your coworkers, all of your family, everyone in your neighborhood, what they want is they're looking for that thing that will eternally satisfy. Tell me I'm wrong. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what everybody wants? I mean, why do you think the U.S. government spends $9 billion a year on, on space exploration? It's because they're looking for hope beyond the planet. Why do you think Americans spend a staggering $12 billion a year on plastic surgery? It's because if they can't live forever, at least they can try to make it look like they will. Do you see? You see, everybody has a longing in their souls for what will eternally satisfy. Which raises the question, what is eternal life? Well, you remember what Christ said in John 17, 3, right? What he said, that eternal life is knowing he and the Father. Eternal life is knowing he and the Father in Trinitarian love. And you remember Luke 24, 43, Christ to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me where? In paradise. And then you remember Ephesians 2, 7, where it says that in the coming ages, God will display the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness on us in Christ Jesus. What's the point? Squish those together. And what is eternal life? It's not just living a really long time. It is seeing and savoring the beauty and kindness of God in Christ in paradise forever. He is the prize. He is the treasure. He is the fountain forever. And you know what? It will not be some mystical experience. It will be real. It's time to trim out of your theology visions of weird clouds and and wings and, and harps. It's time to be done with all that because you see, Heaven is also a real place, and people go there. And there you will see things, and say things, and do things, and eat things, and God will be at the center of all of it, and he will satisfy our souls forever. So what's the application to Christmas? Is there an application to that? Oh, there sure is. You see, this Christmas, I want you to feel totally freed up, I want you to feel no shame at all in enjoying Christmas cookies, cider, um, ornaments, candles, blinking lights, all the trappings of Christmas. I want you to feel totally freed up to enjoy those things. Not as ends in themselves, as if they were the point, But rather, the secret to these kinds of things and other life experiences is that we just take the fractions of pleasure that we experience in all those things, we just savor that in our souls, we savor that in our mouths, and we use that as a little appetizer of what it will be like to enjoy God forever. Did you know that's why God gave us temporary pleasures on this earth? Why? So that he could take them away in eternal life and then we just stand there bored for all eternity? Shh, we're worshiping. I mean, is that that what this is? No, every additional experience given to us in this life is a foretaste and an appetizer in hors d'oeuvres of the pleasure we'll experience in God forever in eternity. It's like Jonathan Edwards said, we will, ex- we will enjoy one another 
We will enjoy angelic beings, and I would include, we will enjoy food, and we will enjoy experiences, and we will enjoy coffee shops, and restaurants, and conversations, and all the things that we enjoy now. The diff will be, God will be there. And he will satisfy our souls forever. And so my question is, and I basically close with this, if, if you don't know Christ this morning, my question is, I just want you to know, he is there for the taking. Everything that he purchased with his death is free of charge, there for the taking, by faith in him, and he is ready to give it to anyone who is ready to give up everything and follow him. And so my question is, are you ready to give up everything? And so I, I, I close with, with a call to be saved. So the words of a hymn that people sing every year. I don't know if you sing these words. Oh, night divine when Christ was born. This is my call to you to be saved if you are not. Come then to him who lies in the manger. With joyful shepherds proclaim him as Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger in reverent worship. Make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace their lives he will adorn. Fall on your knees. Receive the gift of heaven. O night divine when Christ was born. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that familiar truths would become fresh to us this morning, to me especially. And Lord, this is routine for us. This is normal for us. We expected Christmas sermons this December. We expected to sing these songs. We expected all of this, O oh Lord, but oh, please, O oh Lord, don't let this become routine for us. I pray that we would feel the shock and the scandal of sovereign grace in a new way this December. Lord, I pray that we would look, just as Charles prayed, I pray that we would look with, at unbelievers in our lives with, with a, a sense of great brokenness and compassion and urgency to love them with the gospel. Lord, help us to not play games with life. This, this life is not a game. This is not a, a vacation before Christ you arrive. Lord, this is weighty and serious and every day is in the trenches. And I pray... Oh, Lord, that you would give these sweet people, I pray that you would help them remember that they are in the trenches and that that's where joy is. I pray for redeemed Christmases this December, for profound treasuring of Christ, for bold proclamation of the gospel, that you would give these people eyes to see, opportunities to advance the Great Commission right under their noses, using the holiday season, mangled by commercialism and consumerism, though it may be, oh, may we seize upon this cultural opportunity as a gift of mercy to us to remind the world, oh Lord, that you have broken the silence and you have revealed yourself in your Son. Oh Lord, I pray that this Christmas would be the sweetest and most joyful one and ever. And I pray that you would save someone, either in this room right now, or save someone in one of these families' lives, O oh Lord, and bring them to yourself. 
And so we look to you, O ultimate gift and present Jesus Christ as our highest treasure. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.